I'm Wilson Lai. I'm Benjamin Yap. I'm Eli Sands. I'm Graham Brown. And you're listening to Deep Cut. I'll be loving you always. (laughs) 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 Nice. You know, guys, there's nothing like the hurly-burly of a carnival to help recover from the stress of daily routine. (laughs) Oh, so true, so true. On Deep Cut, we compare a director's most popular film with a personal favorite chosen by one of us. We also discuss the director's life and career to bring context that helps us view their movies as they may want us to. A lot of movie lovers like us take for granted that we'll be able to see the movies that we love in perpetuity throughout the universe. But not only have many thousands of works from film history been lost or destroyed, but the continued existence of the movies that we can access today, even digitally, are not a done deal, perfectly safe until the inevitable heat death of the universe. (laughs) If you love movies, you have conservationists to thank. And if you spend time in the Deep Cut Discord server, check the link in the description, You'll notice that we wind up having a lot of conversations about the challenges of film preservation and restoration and how that intersects with the creative choices of directors and artists who lived and worked decades ago. Those conversations are routinely eye-opening for me because we have a bona fide film preservationist among us, and he's joining us today to discuss a movie which both is great and has a fascinating preservation story. Ben, please introduce our great guest. Very happy to. Graham Brown is an assistant preservation officer at the George Eastman Museum in Rochester, New York, which is one of the largest film archives in the United States. He recently appeared in a video by Insider profiling the vital work that he and his colleagues perform. Before all this, he was also our friend and peer in undergraduate studies, where his thesis, Beyond the Infinite, a genre study of the hypothetical space film, demarcated a genre separate from science fiction that treats stories in space with scientific accuracy. He presented his thesis in a homemade replica of Dave's spacesuit from 2001, A Space Odyssey, which I remember very clearly in my mind. I can Me see too. now, man. That was, also, that was pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I remember us drinking champagne after that as well, with you still in that suit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you very much. I'm honored to be here. Big fan of the show. And I'm excited to talk about this movie with you guys. Wonderful. Oh, that's great. Thanks, Graham. So if you could tell us a bit about what got you into film preservation in the first place and why it's important to, I think that will be a good way to kickstart a conversation. Oh, absolutely. I'd be happy to. So like many of our peers and colleagues from undergrad, I went to college uh, with the goal of becoming a filmmaker. That was my intent when I had applied to Westland. But then after learning more about the field and what it takes to be a director, I was starting to wonder if that path was really for me. But nonetheless, I continued with the film major for the first part of my college career. And during my sophomore year in film 304, The History of World Cinema, we watched a digital copy of Carl Theodore Dreyer's 1928 film, The Passion of Joan of Arc, which I'm sure you all remember. (laughs) And it completely blew me away. You know, of course, all the movies that we saw in that class were excellent. But this one was one of those big life-affirming, aha, artistic moments for me. Mm. Joan of Arc is like sort of another tier. I was thinking about 
choosing that film for us to watch, but everyone's seen Joan of Arc. I wanted to choose something a little bit... A deep cut. Yeah, a, a more deep cut, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, after seeing that movie, I was I was obsessed with the story of it and how the master negative of the original version was destroyed in a fire and how the film was considered lost for decades until an employee of the Dykemark Hospital in Oslo, Norway found a single copy in the janitor's closet in 1981. Oh, my God. And so it it really struck a chord with me that this great work of art was in such a precarious state for so long, at risk of being forever lost to time, and now it's available for us to watch at the press of a button. And so I thought, you know, that's what I want to do. I want to be on that team that does that work. And so... Film archiving is a rather niche field, so undergraduate programs in this country regrettably don't offer much in the way of education in film archiving and preservation. So as I was graduating, I asked one of our professors, uh, Michael Slowick, what I should be doing to get started in that field. And he recommended that I apply to the L. Jeffrey Selznick School of Film Preservation, which is a preservation program conducted by the George Eastman Museum here in Rochester. And so I didn't apply there right out of college because I wanted to get my feet wet with a little bit of real life work experience first. And so I remember the the summer and fall after I graduated, I was researching film labs right, left and sideways, sending out emails, <laughs> seeing who would hire a bright eyed, bushy tailed, newly minted undergraduate film major. And I was fortunate enough to get an internship at Negative Land Motion Picture Lab in Ridgewood, Queens. And Negative Land is an artist-owned and operated film lab that specializes in small-gauge motion picture film. So 16mm, Super 8, and 8mm. And so because of that, it was a, a haven for local artists and students and experimental filmmakers, people shooting things on small gauge around New York City. And I really cannot say enough good things about my time there. It was really enriching to learn about the chemistry of film and to develop these reels by hand in the dark room because we would use these uh these contraptions called lomo spirals which kind of look like you know vinyl discs they're you know these circular round discs with a spiral groove which you thread up in the dark and then you have it inside of a small cylindrical drum or tank where you can like put in the developer and put in the water and yeah, it's all done by hand. Wow. Because the film developing machines are so large and expensive that a small lab like that wouldn't be able to afford one. Right. And during my time there, I became really acutely aware of and sensitized to how these labs occupy a rather strong position of trust in the community because the lab workers are ultimately the people responsible for rescuing the filmmakers' memories and visions from the unstable chemical ether of the film (laughs) stock and crystallizing them into the images that we see today. Yeah. Because, of course, the director is the one with the vision behind the project, but then that vision remains unrealized until the actual film is developed, and the film lab are the people that those artists trust to do that essential step of the work. Right. And so it really touched me to be able to do that for so many people there, and that sort of like reaffirmed to me that I was on the right path. And I think the four of us having had experience shooting with film, we all understand the fragility of working with film 
itself and yes. how much trust we put into the labs that we send our shot film to and the blind trust that it would come back looking good if we didn't make any mistakes <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely like the filmmaker puts their heart and soul into the images that they make and they put a lot of care into you know planning everything choosing what to shoot how they shoot all of that we have to match that same level of dedication when it comes to developing the film so that the film project can be realized and they can continue to you know the tradition can continue to live on and so after about a year at negative land i decided to apply to the selznick school here at the george eastman museum and then so i attended the year after that and i just graduated last june with the one-year certificate in film preservation they also offer a two years master's option and then went on to accept the position with the museum in their digital preservation laboratory which we call Film Preservation Services, or FPS for short. Frames per second. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and film preservation is especially important to me because film history is really our history. Hmm. The moving image, as you know, was developed at the turn of the 20th century, and since then it's exploded and become this ubiquitous part of our culture. Everywhere we go, we see moving images. We see them on our phones, we see them on our TVs, we see them on movies, we have myriad different streaming options. It's everywhere. And so I started down this path because of my experience with Joan of Arc and wanting to rescue great works of art like that so others could study them and become inspired as I was. Uh, you know, in the fall of 2015, watching that movie in a college class. But there's so much more at stake than just fictional storytelling. The film contains records of people's histories, their cultures, and their struggles. So, you know, how can we be expected to be in touch with who we are and where we come from and our position within the greater movements and our greater history if we only have visual records of the recent years? Mm. So film is how we, how we can listen to the voices of the past. And the images that we see not only influence how we view ourselves, but also how we view our world and our place in the world. So we really can't afford to neglect that, what I th think of as a vital organ in our culture. And so I, I feel compelled to help in that effort however I can. That's beautiful. That's very well said. Incredible. <laughs> Incredible. And I'm glad that we're finally putting credit to, or we're trying to give credit to preservationists, but also like shining a light on silent era films, because mm. this is the first mm -hmm. silent film that we've covered on the podcast. And I'm sure a lot of other podcasts would definitely not cover a, a silent movie <laughs> from the 20s. <laughs> but I think it's, it's their loss. Yeah, it is their loss, but <laughs> I think true. it's very important in looking back at how visual storytelling was formed and the really innovative ways that it was used so early on. And there's like a really high percentage of silent films that are just lost forever that no one can view. They say upwards of 70% of American silent films are, are lost. Oh my God, I feel like that number keeps on going up. Mm -hmm. Even beyond silent films or movies that date back a century or close to a century, digital material is not automatically safe. Yeah. Digital material is, is 
less stable than you would think. Yeah. It, it's honestly less stable than you would think because, as we know, uh, digital technologies are always changing. Mm. You know, file format standards, how we read digital files, that's always changing. So with a digital archive, you have to be constantly migrating and upgrading your collections and your technology in order to keep up with the rate of change. Whereas, you know, a real film, a black and white real film, if it's stored properly, can last hundreds of years. And you don't really need to intervene on it as much as you would have to with um, with an all digital archive. You just need to have a projector hanging around. Yeah. <laughs> or, or make one. I mean, you could probably make one if you didn't have one and like figure it out. <laughs> Even if you didn't have a projector, you know, let's hypothetical thousands of years in the future post-apocalyptic <laughs> landscape you come across a reel yeah. of lonesome as long as you have a light source you will be able to view the images and mm. see what exactly is on that reel and what it is mm. and what it yeah. depicts and what it's saying and you can hum a soundtrack to yourself <laughs> yeah digital information is all zeros and ones your file could get corrupted and now that file if you don't have backups of it is lost forever it requires upkeep right like somebody yeah. needs to maintain that forever or if there was an apocalyptic scenario it's gone it's gonna be yeah. almost impossible to retrieve unless you knew what you were looking for i'll be right back yeah, guys you... i'm gonna go buy a hard drive <laughs> <laughs> no it's really funny because there's an archive here in singapore called the asian film archive mm -hmm. and they screen movies sometimes and when you watch a movie in their theater which doesn't necessarily have to be an old film, they always play this kind of promotional clip for the archive, which is, in black and white, super depressing. Oh, no. <laughs> like, text on white, and it's just graphics talking about the fragility of film and protecting this medium that we all know and love. And I'm always thinking, y'all need to make this a little bit more uplifting, because it's always just like... <laughs> 50% of hard drives fail every year. 90% <laughs> of films are lost. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh my god. I mean, gosh. they're not wrong. <laughs> they're not wrong. <laughs> but it's very depressing. <laughs> Would it be useful to get some working terminology for our episode on the ground up top? Or do you want to do that later? I think it probably would be best to do that right now then. Let's do it. Preservation in motion picture archiving is essentially duplication. It's preserving a film means making new photochemical and oftentimes digital elements of an original artifact to safeguard against the loss of that artifact. Mm -hmm. So I don't consider a film to be preserved unless there is a known duplicate negative in a safe location because that duplicate negative can be used to generate new iterations and new copies of that film. Preservation is distinct from both conservation and restoration. Conservation is the practice of protecting that original artifact from damage and decay. So conservation is centered on the original artifact and making sure that stays around as long as possible. And restoration is what we think of as restoration is a, a set of technical, editorial, and intellectual procedures that aim to compensate for the degradation of that original artifact and return it to a state as close as possible to its original condition. So a lot of times people will use those three terms, preservation, conservation, and restoration interchangeably. So it's good that we can clarify that they are in fact three separate processes and what each means. 
Another word you'll hear me use a lot is element. So a film element is any film object in that film's production. So the negative, that's an element. The interpositive, that's an element. The duplicate negative, element. Print, that's an element. Any film object can be called element. Right. And a print specifically is a positive use for projection and exhibition. Right. So if you have a negative, that's not a print. It's a negative. Just want to get that out of the way up front. Okay. Should we launch into Lonesome? Yes. Do it. Okay. So when we asked you which movie you would like to discuss, you chose this film, Lonesome, mm-hmm. from 1928, directed by Paul Feijos. Tell me I'm saying Fe- that. It's Pat. I believe it's pronounced <laughs> Pal Feij. I can't do that. <laughs> Professionally, he was known as Paul Feijos. So okay. either Let's or, go with that. I would say. So Paul Feijos. And why don't you tell us about your connection with this film and why you made this choice and brought this deep cut to our podcast? Well, when when Eli approached me about coming on the show, this film was was honestly a no-brainer for me. Hmm. Lonesome is one of the crown jewels of the museum's collection. It's a preservation and restoration project that we undertook many times in the past. And it's an excellent case study of what exactly goes into film preservation. A lot of the common obstacles or things that we just have to deal with. And it's also a great movie and one that's Mm -hmm. criminally underseen in terms of film circles, I think. It reminded me in a lot of ways of King Vidor's The Crowd, but even that seems more widely seen than this. Yeah, it's very, very similar to The Crowd. King Vidor obviously was very famous and successful director so he's a bit more well known than Feosh and so his his legacy is a bit more solidified although Lonesome is one of the most requested titles from our collection so it is getting out there but it hasn't quite made the break into the mainstream canon that other silent films from that era have film twitter hasn't seized upon it yet yeah but wait no. till they hear this podcast episode yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so graham when you say that people request the film from the archive does that mean that you are sending out dcps or are you sending out prints like reprints of lonesome like what are they requesting it depends on what they want and what they need and what we can send them i'm not in the collection management team so i'm i don't know exactly you know the breakdown of the stats of how much we send out dcps versus prints versus right researchers coming on site to view the films here oh wow so that's like a wide variety yeah exactly and so pal Feuge, for a little bit of background information on the director known professionally of course as paul Feuge, was a hungarian american director of feature films and documentaries who worked in a number of countries across the globe. He was born to parents of the Austro-Hungarian landed gentry and was interested in medicine during his youth. In World War I, he worked as a medical orderly for the Imperial Austrian Army on the Italian front lines and also managed a theater that performed for the troops. Hmm. After the war, he returned to Budapest and eventually worked for the Orient Film Production Company, and began to direct films in 1919 or 1920 for mobile studios until he escaped Hungary in 1923 to flee the White Terror and the Horthy regime. He eventually made his way to New York City, living there from late 1923 until 1926 when he moved to Los Angeles, and he began production on his first American feature, The Last Moment, 
in October 1927. The film was popular and was a success and led him to a contract with Universal Studios. And after directing several other films in America, Feos became fed up with Hollywood, left the country in 1931, and directed sound films in France, Austria, and Denmark. And by 1935, he had grown tired of narrative film and what he viewed of as inauthentic stories and began <laughs> filming more ethnographic subjects. In 1936, he studied cultural anthropology at the Museum of Copenhagen and spent the remainder of the 30s filming ethnographies and conducting research. And then in 1941, he stopped making films altogether and became the director of research and the acting head of the Viking Fund, a nonprofit foundation for anthropological research. Wow. And he was a very well-regarded anthropologist in the later part of his life and is probably more well-known in those circles than he is in film circles. <laughs> and he was considered very ahead of his time in that field and taught at Yale, Stanford, and Columbia University before he passed away on April 23rd, 1963. Oh my gosh, what a life. It's a very interesting life because in Lonesome, you can see his ethnographic interests come through in the film. Oh, absolutely. He sort of takes an anthropological approach to his subjects. Yeah, definitely. He goes very broad and categorical in how he depicts what Jim and Mary are going through in their day-to-day -day lives. Mm-hmm. There's a almost documentary-like quality to it in the way that he tells you this one day in your lives, right? Mm -hmm. Like literally from waking up to going to work and then going to Coney Island. It's a very deliberate showing of their lives. Yeah. And I mean, the plot is fairly thin, but I think the pleasures in watching this is in seeing how he envisions life in the 20s, which was obviously contemporary for him. And I think that stuff is really interesting. And obviously the carnival is just wicked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's so much going on in the carnival. And I think Fejos's choice to not just contain the camera to just our two romantic leads and in some scenes just let that breathing room to see other people getting on the rides and other people enjoying their time and just yeah. interacting with their loved ones. You, you really get a sense of a much larger world outside of the film itself and i'm pretty sure those were not like hired extras or maybe some of them were but to get crowds of that size i don't know if that was well who knows who knows it's silent era it was probably staged it's hard to tell i think it looks like it could be on location i'm pretty sure it's on location but i'm not gonna say i know whether or not they are paid extras or Real people or quote real people. I, <laughs> that, that I don't know. Right. Actors are not real people. <laughs> but Feos, as we've discussed, lived in New York City for a few years when he first came to America. And he lived there in pretty acute poverty for when he first arrived. He took jobs in funeral parlors and Ooh. piano shops he was working a lot of odd jobs he came to america speaking almost no english and with no money in his pocket wow. so he was very aware of the plight of the working man in new york city just what it takes to survive and live in that city and the sort of mania of it in a 1962 interview when the interviewer asked feos if lonesome had brought up memories of his time in new york Fejos replied, quote, 
I wanted to put in a picture New York with its terrible pulse beat <laughs> that everybody rushes, that even when you have time, you run down to the subway, get the <laughs> express, and then change over to a local. All these things, this terrific pressure that's on people, the multitude in which you are always moving, but in which you are still alone. You don't know who is your next door neighbor, unquote. <laughs> Oh my god, that's still accurate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he was ahead of the curve. <laughs> and Ben, this documentary like style that you bring up is one hundred percent there. I see like we get a sense of these people's place in the sort of larger machine of New York City. They're very monotonous, mm. mechanized jobs as a telephone operator and in the factory. And then how they then, you know use their shared experience and, and class position to connect with each other once, you know, right. they get to the carnival and finish their initial flirtations. <laughs> We're dropping a lot of info about our dear Jim and Mary, so let's get a little <laughs> plot summary on the table about what they do. They are both working class. They, working class they are stiffs. both young workers <laughs> in New York. What was what? <laughs> working class stiffs. <laughs> As he calls an, ordi it. an ordinary working stiff is what I believe Jim <laughs> <right>. says. <laughs> Mary is a telephone line operator. Jim works in a sheet metal pressing factory. Am I right about that? <laughs> Probably, yeah. <laughs> I guess. Looks like it. And they are both feeling lonesome in the big city because all their friends are going on fancy trips and going to the beach and coupled up and in love. And poor Jim and Mary are feeling all alone and probably a little bit H-word. So they both decide to go to Coney Island for the day, hip hip hooray, where they find hooray. each other, they chat, they pretend to be upper class, and then as they start to realize that they have legit feelings for each other, or maybe they're still just H-word, they... Uh, <laughs> drop the guys and decide to be honest with each other about who they are. They form an attachment. They have an incredibly realized and illustrated and colorful and sonic, yes, mm -hmm. journey into the carnival at Coney Island together. They are briefly separated when a roller coaster catches on fire and Mary passes <laughs> just out. Just the wheel, and... not the whole coaster, just the wheel. <laughs> right, right. I'm exaggerating, really. <laughs> but there appears to be a danger. Mary passes out. Jim, trying to get to her, is arrested by a cop. And they are separated for a while. And once Jim is released by the police, he goes back to Coney Island. They wander around, can't find each other. And they sadly make their way home as the day ends with a thunderstorm at beautiful Coney Island. And when he gets home, Jim forlornly plays the song that they both danced to earlier, I'll Be Loving You Always. And Mary hears her neighbor blasting, I'll Be Loving You Always. Wouldn't you know it? They're neighbors. They hug. Of course. And all's well. Roll credits. <laughs> How'd I do? This is a short and sweet movie. I was I was tearing up the first time I saw this movie. Yeah. It's surprisingly sweet. Like, it works. Yeah. I think yeah, the amount of romanticism that is relayed through just their faces and the camera movement and the score all together is really unmatched. I feel like the amount of emotion there is, like, riding at such a high level. And what 
also really like shocked me about this film was that it's not actually just a full silent film. I was going in thinking that there was going to be intertitles all throughout and then like halfway through got a cut and Jim starts talking. And I was like, what's happening here? <laughs> but I think that this is like a really great example of like the growing pains of adapting the industry into one that has sound film, right? I, correct me if I'm wrong, yes. Graham. No, you are absolutely right. And Growing Pains is a good way to describe it. <laughs> so, as you say, this film is part talkie. It is one of the part talkies of the late 20s. So, the jazz singer, which we all know, had come out less than a year before this. And audiences and studios were all gearing up for the transition into sound. People wanted sound and they wanted the people on the screen to talk and so lonesome was actually released twice it was released in oh. january as a full silent feature and then a few months later it was re-released with the new dialogue scenes inserted into the film mm. wow and the dialogue scenes in my opinion are the worst part of the movie <laughs> because they're pretty rough the dialogue yeah. is the least some to be desired, I'll, I'll just say. <laughs> I'm your little lamb. Yeah. <laughs> have, you a, have you a yacht? I've never heard of a yacht with straps on it. No. Uh, <laughs> and the reason is because in terms of filmmaking, those sequences are just incredibly bland. The camera mm. doesn't mm. move. It just stays on Jim and Mary. And then later when he's in the police department with the world's most awkward sergeant. The camera just <laughs> stares at him and doesn't do anything particularly interesting because, as we know, the technology required to record dialogue on set made the camera big and clunky and difficult to operate. So they just had to shoot dead center. I found the choice to shoot the police station scene with sound so strange. Because if, if you didn't have that, then you're saying, oh, Jim and Mary talk to each other. These are, you know, moments of intimacy. But then here's a moment of intimacy with the police. <laughs> and it's like, okay. <laughs> well, it's because he's, it's because he's telling a joke. It's, I think it's because the police sergeant is, is meant to be a, a comic character. He's like, oh, I'm charging you with picking up girls. <laughs> <laughs> and then he just suddenly changes his mind. Oh, go on, find your girl. I'm just feeling silly. He makes this fun of the police officer with Jim. <laughs> like, what? Yeah. <laughs> Not only is the technology awkward in those early sound scenes, and they can't take advantage of editing even, the performances are also awkward. It's like actors also were learning how to adjust to having dialogue on screen. Absolutely. There's also color. It's really interesting to watch this and then see the way that the physicality of the actors changes between the silent bits and the talky bits. Mm. And how they train themselves to be much more physically expressive because of the way silent film was. And then when they do the talky stuff, they are sometimes splitting the difference, sometimes going too far to being too static. And then with a part talky film like this, it becomes like there is this whiplash when you move between the modes of, of filmmaking where the way they express their characters just changes on the on a dime. And mm -hmm. it's very jarring. <laughs> and it's a very interesting artifact of like 
watching this split of changing between silent and sound and like literally seeing two kinds of acting within one film is really cool actually hmm. yeah that's, that's that's an interesting point i hadn't thought of that before but one of the boons of the transition to sound that lonesome really takes advantage of is its synchronized soundtrack mm, yes and its use of sound design even from the opening montage where we hear the bells and whistles and clangs of new york city and then that slowly fades out and then we hear the alarm clock and the focus shifts to mary waking up and we hear the alarm clock before we see it and it helps to sort of link her to you know her place within this city and it serves as a good way to transition into you know shifting our pov from the city at large to just this one person. And then Phaos uses sound to construct space later in the film at the end when we hear always loud in Jim's apartment, but then it's soft and muted in Mary's apartment. And we, you know, instantly know, oh, they're neighbors before they put it together. Sort of the genesis of sound design right here. Yeah, it's yeah. very... <laughs> and it's really cool because it sort of offers this what if thought exercise of branching history where what if when sound technology and optical soundtracks hit the scene if filmmakers had started to prioritize this sort of sound design over just dialogue we probably would have seen more movies like lonesome like this mm. where you know we have songs being used as motifs right and we start to you know ascribe emotional feelings to these songs because we we're hearing the sounds you know be transformed as the movie goes on it's definitely the kind of thing that like as i'm watching it you don't really notice this thing because we've already been conditioned to understand these things quite intrinsically like the use of sound motifs like these are very kind of modern things that we can understand and like feel the connection between the two rooms without having to understand that this is completely new at the time and like mm -hmm. a new device that i mean i don't know how the audience is going to take it maybe they didn't notice either because it's like it's in a way kind of using something that feels like a realistic sense of the world right right to help mm -hmm. you understand right. what's going on so it, it's very not primal it's very it's it's just how you understand the world it's, it's just you. it's diegesis yeah. you know you're hearing yeah. what yeah. The, you're exactly. hearing what the characters hear but it's but it's a silent movie too yeah I'm fascinated by how all the sound techniques that Feosh is using are analogs of visual techniques, right? Think of the idea of contiguous space, which is something that is born of silent movies like those of D.W. Griffith, boo, where <laughs> if a shot follows another shot with a character going left to right, then the subsequent shot, if that character is still going left to right, the space is contiguous, it's connected. The sound of I'll Be Loving You Always being loud in Jim's room and muffled in Mary's room allows Feosh to break that visual rule and go for a more emotional angle on Mary while still connecting the space using how the sound changes from room to room. But again, as Ben said, there's no precedent for that. We take that for granted now, but no one had really done that before. So what an incredible innovation. Yeah, I think what Ben was saying about 
realism and how added sound or the development of new technology adds realism to it. I think that brings up a point that I was gonna make about how, in my opinion, silent films have the ability to become more surreal and really reach for the highs of expressing emotion through just visuals and not caring about the reality of it all because without sound you have that distancing between the audience and what is in front of the camera and what you believe is I feel like it's a lot more this is a theory that I have in my head that once the sound is taken away or you don't have synchronized sound then you can believe a lot more and I think the spectacle of the movie is a lot grander there right once you start getting closer and closer to what you see in real life and what you hear in real life then I think our standards of what we believe from what we see on the screen becomes a lot higher because it, we, we want it to be as close to our life as possible. But I think that's the beautiful thing about silent film is that directors can really just reach for the stars. And you can see that in some of the sequences in this movie where Fejos really just goes for like 100% like romanticism. Let's just forget where we are, forget all the people around us maybe, and just try to show these emotions is how they would be feeling inside. And I think that's incredible. This reminds me of our conversations around Lynn Ramsey, who, building on Robert Bresson, has this idea that if you eliminate sound and focus on just visual, or vice versa, there's something inherently poetic about that because it clears out the noise and stimulation that we constantly have in our lives and just allows you to focus on one thing. That is absolutely a strength of silent film. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, Feuge employs montage incredibly well to overstimulate and give you a lot at once in a way that is still focused. And I find that very fascinating. The final scene is actually very expressive in like cutting to weather and the cityscape, which is like almost a like an abstract cityscape, right? Yeah, it's like this Art Deco expressionist yeah, sort of. It's pretty totally. it's pretty lit. <laughs> it's it's fun because those are such short little almost like interstitial shots, you know, just inserts of the city. But when I was rewatching it this time, when the cities are silhouetted, it looks like a real skyline. But then when the thunder flashes you see that it's just these like Art Deco drawings. And <laughs> I'm not really sure what that says or if that's a really groundbreaking point i just thought it was cool (laughs) (laughs) it is cool it is but you bring up the last scene and i want to talk about something there that maybe is a good segue just into sort of lonesome's journey of preservation before we continue diving more into the form of the film so you you guys all saw those big splotches in the last scene right we all watched the same movie (laughs) those discolored puddles what you're seeing there is the early stages of nitrate decomposition oh that is stage one decomp where the image starts to fade and discolor then there are five stages of nitrate decomposition that's stage one 
Stage two is when the film starts to get sticky. It'll stick to itself as you're trying to unwind it. It gets more brittle and the emulsion starts to melt away. And then in stage three, the film starts to form gas bubbles and smell really rancid. And the emulsion (laughs) will start to melt away and you'll get really large loss of image information. And as the film sort of becomes this honey-like ooze. And up to that point... You can still rescue parts of the image. You can scan it, sort of get the most you can from it. And then in stage four, the film actually starts to fuse together. Like the reel of the film will fuse into a giant hockey puck. And in stage five, it just disintegrates into a very fine brown powder. So once the film reaches stage four or five, it's beyond our help and needs to be destroyed so it doesn't spontaneously combust. <laughs> That's the part of nitrofilm I know about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very flammable. When it burns, it produces oxygen, so it makes its own fuel, and the fire is pretty much impossible to extinguish. You could throw a reel of flaming nitrate into a vat of water, and when you pull it out of the water, it'll still be on fire. Oh! <laughs> Oh my god. Wild. <laughs> Nitrate is so dangerous that they used to make projection booths that sealed in the case of a fire, locking inside the projectionist. Locking the projectionist inside? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. if the film would perish, you would perish with the film? Yeah, well, the captain has to go down with the ship, right? <laughs> That's pretty hardcore. <laughs> I mean, you, you protect the audience, and then the projectionist would die. Yeah, so yeah. the George Eastern Museum is actually one of the few theaters left in the country that is authorized to project nitrate film still. Wow. And every summer, we have a big festival of film conservation called the Nitrate Picture Show, which is happening this year from June 2nd to June 5th. Oh, really? Yes. And so I guess I'll just take a moment here to just sort of discuss Lonesome's preservation and just the the different steps along its its route yes. and how it finally ended up here. So this project, the Lonesome Preservation Project, went through multiple iterations at the George Eastman Museum, which used to be called the George Eastman House. The film came into the museum's possession in 1967 as a gift from the Cinémathèque Française. Uh-huh. And its founder, the legendary film archivist and cinephile Henri Langlois, the first preservation took place in 1973 when the museum made a duplicate black and white negative and full color sound print. And because this print came from France, it had French intertitles and that original preservation and print still had the French intertitles. And so in the seventies, many preservation projects would make black and white negatives of color films because black and white film stock was cheaper than color and more chemically stable than color film. And then in 1993, Lonesome was preserved again, this time with a color negative. And then in 1994, English titles were created and inserted into the film, and a new negative was made for those. And creating intertitles in and of itself is a whole art form for this film title cards from surviving universal productions were assembled in order to choose the right font so that it would look as it would during its original release and other translations from that time period were also consulted so that the french intertitles could be translated back into an english that matched the mannerisms of the late 20s whoa 
And so then later in 2006, two new lonesome prints were struck for the Telluride Film Festival. And then it was preserved a fifth time from 2009 to 2010. And that is the version that we have all watched. This pass included a full restoration where the soundtrack was re-recorded, all the titles recreated, dirt and damage was digitally removed, and the original color fully replicated. Wow. My God. What a journey. Yes, indeed. When, yeah. you, when you say the color is replicated, what do you mean? Because like, you were talking about the black and white prints and, and stuff. So a lot of times people think of silent films as only being black and white when that's not true. Most silent films had some color in them, whether it was tinting, where the film is placed in a dye bath and the base, the clear parts of the film soak up the dye and become a color. And then the white parts of the image are tinted and the black stay black. There was toning, wherein the metallic silver salts that are in the black areas of the film, there's this chemical process where those are replaced with a different metal, like iron or copper, which has a different color. So those would make the shadows, whatever color, green for copper, for example. And then there's hand coloring, which is also present in Lonesome, where specific parts of the frame are colored in one color. There's stenciling, which is a more automated version of hand coloring, where people would cut out little stencils on a strip of film and then roll the dye over it so that they could paint multiple frames at a time. So silent film was very colorful, extremely so. But a lot of these colors have faded since the time these original prints were made. And so when we recreate the color, what we do is we take our scans of the film and we regrade them. We look at the original artifacts. We try to see if there are some parts of the frame or the film where the dye is not as faded so we can see what was a more original color. Sometimes we have continuity scripts that will say amber tint, for example, so we know that one section is supposed to have this color, even if it's not present on the original artifact anymore. Hmm. So a lot of that, that's all done digitally now. But yeah, so when we're replicating the color, we're taking our digital copy, our digital surrogate, and pretty much regrading it from scratch that way to recreate the colors as close to what we think would have been on the original print. And that's a really fun and collaborative process because, of course, you can't just have one person look at a color and say, oh, that's green, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm sure you guys noticed that the the image quality of this film fluctuates a lot. Yes. yes. Especially when it <laughs> shifts from the dialogue scenes to the silent scenes. Yeah. And so because this restoration came from a single source print... Uh, it's reasonable to assume that that print was assembled from many different film elements of varying quality. And of course, because the dialogue scenes were added later, it makes sense that those scenes look cleaner and have less damage because they were probably exhibited less than the rest of the film. I had a question, Graham. Yes, Wilson. So I watched the insider video that you're in. And first of all, very cool. Very cool. (laughs) Oh, thank you. I think I learned a lot about the amount of time and effort that goes into preserving and also restoring these films. But it seems like you guys have a massive backlog. And I was just wondering, how do you determine what goes to the front of the backlog? Is it 
the nature of the prints. So if they're like around stage three or stage four, like, would you put them at the top because they'll like go sooner? Or is it with contracts? Like, how does that usually work? How do you choose your projects? When determining preservation priorities, we want to sort of prioritize things that have not been preserved yet. So if preservations exist elsewhere, then it's not as urgent to get that film preserved. And we look for uniqueness or, or damage. So if we notice that something is in an advanced state of decay, we are more inclined to prioritize that and try to get that scanned faster and make new film elements if possible. And if something is unique, uniqueness meaning that there is some quality about that print or that object that is not shared by other prints or elements of that title. That could mean it's the only surviving element. It could mean it has a shot that is missing from other elements, something that distinguishes it. That usually makes something as a good candidate as well. Mm. Lots of factors go into determining it, but typically uniqueness and damage are the biggest things that we look for. You mentioned that lonesome is a good example of the different types of obstacles that come up in restoring a movie. And you've laid out the steps of the process with regards to the color and the sound and the image quality. Were there any particular surprises with Lonesome or unusual obstacles that came up in the process of preserving across these multiple elements for Lonesome? As I was not present during this preservation, I can't answer that question fully. I do know that the soundtrack in particular was substantial obstacle because the original soundtrack was full of pops and hisses and fuzzy. It, was, it just had really poor audio quality. And so I know that the audio restoration in particular was a bit of a, a struggle. But as far as the details of the audio... I was not there, so I can't answer that to the best of my ability. I'm sorry. That was a great answer, though. The sound definitely is in rough shape, but one, that quality of sound is not unexpected with old film at this point, Mm -hmm. unfortunately. And also, it's not bad enough that you can't hear those incredible innovations in what the sound is doing. Exactly. And also, to sort of completely remaster the sound and give it an ear lift, so to speak, (laughs) would be unethical. If we're, you know, making it sound better, if we're making it sound like it was produced in 2022, then we're not being faithful to the original artifact because we're we're augmenting it unnaturally. Can I ask you a tangential question? Sure. There's a YouTube account that uses deepfake technology and AI augmenting to... I guess the right word is not restore, but to make something new out of archival footage. So it'll be like New York in the 1930s, and it took old film stock and makes it look like it's 60 FPS, and in <laughs> Graham's rolling his eyes. <laughs> but I mean, this is also like if you talk about, what is his name? Peter Jackson's World War I footage restorations. They shall cool. not grow old. Yeah. Or yeah. even his his Beatles doc. Is that the one where he adds color where there was no color before? And sound where there was no yeah. sound. Like dialogue. At that point, you're not watching footage from World War One. Yeah. You're watching, you know, 
Peter Jackson's edit of archival footage. Like he made a coloring book. In my view, it's disingenuous and unethical to present that as an original artifact, you know, re-restored from World War One, because the sounds that you see and the images that you hear were not captured mm-hmm. during that time. I mean, I didn't see this. I don't know how it was marketed, but I think the idea is that it's supposed to put you in that time and not necessarily to present artifacts as they are, but I don't know. <laughs> if they're presenting it as authentic, that's what I take issue with. That makes sense. I have not seen this. <laughs> Peter Jackson, I still love you. I love the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> Those are great restorations. Yeah. <laughs> of the time when elves and stuff were roaming the earth. <laughs> yeah, all, all, everything I just said does not apply if your footage is from the Third Age. Make it look great. <laughs> sh- shall we talk about the movie and what we think and the form? And... The experiments that it's doing and the boundaries that it's pushing, because to me, Lonesome sort of represents the silent film at the height of its development. The late 20s is when silent films, the filmmakers really had it figured out, and they were making grand, epic, sophisticated movies that then just got the entire rug pulled out from under them once sound hit the scene, and that art form was just sort of abandoned for a while. And everyone had to relearn how to make movies. But thankfully, we have Lonesome to show us how to do it right. (laughs) Oh, it's done. (laughs) I quite enjoy it. To me, the highlights are the celebration of normalcy and mundanity. And also the way that Feuge elevates that everydayness through these extravagant montages. And in particular, the centerpiece of the movie at the Coney Island Carnival rides, which have color and sound design and just about every possible camera movement that Feosh could throw at the sequence he does. And all this overlaying in the edit, it's remarkable. And then he interrupts all that wonderful cacophony with still. And these moments when Jim and Mary are as they imagine themselves to be all alone, almost like on a stage lit by a spotlight with Mm. a beautiful, I suppose, matte painting of a ride behind them and the moon above them, and the image has color. It's a remarkable balance of maximalism and these very focused and emotional controlled sequences. He was a masterful director. This is a really Mm -hmm. great movie. Yeah, this is a man who knows what he's doing. And I think the carnival montage is a brilliant way of showcasing. He's sort of like showing off. He's like, look at what I can throw at you and make sure you're keeping up. Because I'm sure those 1928 audiences were probably freaking out when they were watching (laughs) this. But I really, really loved all the stuff that happened at the carnival as well and especially the scenes in which jim is sort of looking for mary that initial chasing within the crowds where feuge alternates between these wide shots taken from a tripod and these like moving tracking shots that are sort of point of view shots from both of them as you see that they're trying to look for each other, but it's sort of an impossible task in this sea of people. 
And I think the way he showcases chaos with just using the blocking of so many people is just so effective. And I think in a like a similar, mm-hmm. more toned down way, the scene where they are at the beach and they're going to sit down. So they're moving through these people. And then later on, when they're trying to find Mary's ring that she lost, they're moving through these people as well. He just really has a great ability to use people as mise-en-scene, basically. Another thing about that beach sequence, I don't know how he did the camera moves that he did on the beach, because that would require something like a dolly. But they're on sand. Were they on a studio lot at that point and just meshed it with the sequences of Jim and Mary splashing in the ocean seamlessly? I don't know either. And it's a secret that Feuge may have taken to the grave. Dang. I mean, I'm. I think you can put tracks in the sand. You I could think put it's tracks in. The, yeah, you yeah. put tracks in the sand. Or maybe you know they put something on the sand and then put the tracks on yeah. those. I don't yeah. know. You should it's ask mo- Alex Fabry. It's all about the uh, <laughs> the maneuvering of the people away from the way of the camera. That's like the the coordination you need to do. To especially with mm. the, this many bodies on screen, <laughs> which reminds me of a really funny part I saw might be in that tracking shot talking about where there's this guy throwing a lump of sand at a lady in her face oh yeah <laughs> do y'all see that in the corner of the frame I, I think i did see that <laughs> and i was like wait what and was the lady like oh you rascal <laughs> i don't remember like she like sits down and then he just tosses it into her face and then we move on and we're like following the main characters away and i was like oh okay. that's, that's new york city baby what can i say <laughs> Just try to have a nice day on the beach and some dude just throws sand in your face. <laughs> That's New York. <laughs> and confirm. What I really like, just to continue on the carnival sequence, to me, that reminds me of another one of my favorite movies, The Red Shoes, mm. where in The Red Shoes, the main character, Vicky Page, steps on the stage, and then once she starts dancing in this great centerpiece of the movie... It shifts into this sort of surrealist, abstract ballet sequence that reflects her, you know, inner struggle and her just her emotions. And then that happens in a similar way in the carnival where Jim and Mary are dancing together. The color in that carnival sequence, it does more than just tell us the time of day and give us, you know, a picture of what the carnival looks like. It gives us a window into Jim and Mary's feelings. And we have this great big explosion of color, the camera's moving around, and, like, the tints are changing from pink to yellow to blue. But then, like, the sound shifts into, like, a sort of soft rendition of Always as the crowd fades away, and they start dancing under a moonlit sky with an extremely palatial roller coaster in the background. Incredible. And then they fade back in. And the colors of the world come back. That playing around with the color and the design of the whole sequence, we're able to see how the characters are feeling, and then they shift back into the crowd. I think that's a really uh, exceptional use of the technology at the time. Another thing that completely confounded me as to how it was done was the changing of the color tint within one shot. So as it's holding on Jim and Mary dancing, it goes from pink to yellow or maybe pink to blue and back again. It's not a hard cut from color to color. It fades 
How on earth would that have been accomplished? I wish I could tell you. <laughs> uh, Dang. <laughs> well, isn't the process of like coloring these frames, you are like dipping it in a sort of dye, right? That's one of the... Um, right. Yeah, that's, that's one of the ways you dye the film base. Yeah. So if they could have, I guess, done a gradient sort of dye or they dyed some frames with both of the colors. Um, but it is very seamless. The other thing you can do that's not just dipping the whole film is you can literally draw on the frames, right? Yeah, you could yeah. hand color and just cut very carefully. The thing I noticed was in one of the kind of moonlit scenes, it seemed like the backlight on them was tinted, but the rest of the frame was black and white. Almost like they were being hit by a colored light, but then their faces, aside from that backlit that you can see along the edges... Is this when they're talking in like they're blue, but then their shoulders are like yellow yeah. and green? Yeah. Yeah. That was wonderful. Yeah. Love that shot. Even if the dialogue is pretty... Uh... <laughs> I mean, that one dialogue's not very good, but I actually really like the way that you go from the chaos of the carnival and then you kind of dial in of them sitting against nothing, mm -hmm. like total darkness, and they're just talking to each other. So, I mean, there's something beautiful about that in terms of the construction of, of like creating yeah. the chaos of like first love and then like just honing in on a moment. Yeah, And they're kind of trying to do that with the first dialogue scene with the beach sequence as well. Which is why when the police stuff happens, it really kind of throws the whole <laughs> motif out of whack. Yeah. <laughs> and it kind of ruins everything here. It does like the patterning, but whatever. <laughs> also worth saying that the cops are like Irish cops and the movie's a little weird about that. That whole scene is very questionable. The sergeant just kind of sounds like Drunk Bernie Sanders to me. <laughs> <laughs> Liddy Sanders. Yeah, so as a whole, I feel like the film is blending these surreal and expressionist techniques with sort of the buds of neorealism, hmm. with how he treats the subjects and the city versus how those are ultimately realized on screen. It very much falls in the tradition of Man with a Movie Camera and Berlin Symphony of a Metropolis, in that it's, it's exploring this one aspect of the city and how the people function yeah. and live within it. I totally see the thread. Did you guys see the twist coming at the end that they were going to be neighbors? Or was that a complete shock? I had an inkling that, I mean, like, when you do that kind of thing where you bring the lovers apart and then you know it's going to come back together. And I had an inkling and I was like, oh, okay. This might be where we're going, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I thought it would be like a same building type thing, but right next door. I, I was not expecting the right yeah. next door. Oh my God, they were roommates. <laughs> I was thinking like, you know, above and below or something. I don't know. I will come clean and say that they totally got me. The first time I saw this movie, I thought they were going to be separated forever and never see each other again. And I was welling up when so <laughs> she heard the music through the wall. Yeah. I didn't believe that. 20s Hollywood would do that to people. Yeah. <laughs> people were depressed enough at the time, I feel. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> this is, this is pre stock crash. This is pre stock market oh, crash. So they could use a little, bring yeah. it back down to earth. <laughs> oh man. But um, I love the clock scene while they're working, how the clock is moving. Yeah. And the hands are turning as they're going through. It's, it's great. And how. The camera pans, but then pans between different locations. It'll be Jim's yes. factory, 
Oh, yeah. And then, you know, Mary's telephone operator office, whatever those buildings are called, will, will slide in. Yeah. And it just keeps sliding back and forth, like, keeps on going, like, more and more and more. It just means that everything was so intricately planned out pre-shoot. Like, he knew how he was going to cut this. Yeah. It's a visual treat to watch because there are so many axes of motion happening at the same time. You've got the clock hands, which are, you know, rotating around the screen, moving radially. You've got Jim's machine in the background pumping up and down and, like, people moving back and forth. And then the camera itself is moving right to left. So you've got this right to left movement. You've got the up and down machine, the rotating of the clock. You've got Mary and her coworkers moving the wires around. There's just so much happening at once, but it's all extremely coherent. Yeah. To me, the movie feels more like a painting or a symphony yeah than something like literature which is sort of how we view movies today in the talking age Mm. right but in the silent age it was all about the spectacle it was all about the visual spectacle that's why people went and the emotion it's not all spectacle there's the emotional core definitely in every movie definitely definitely i'm reminded of a quote from the great 1950s film sunset boulevard where Gloria Swanson, as Norma Desmond, says, We didn't need dialogue. We had faces. Yeah. <laughs> but you, they had so much more than faces. They had all of these different like, innovative camera techniques and sound design and great filmmakers and the capacity to do color and to do interesting experimental sequences like we see in Lonesome. It's so much more than just a face on a screen, which is how people tend to dismiss silent films these days. And I feel like a lot of directors working today could pick up a thing or two by watching a silent flick. I'm sure, I can't speak for all three of you, but I definitely noted some shots down from this movie (laughs) that I was like, oh, I'm going to try that. Maybe try that strong (laughs) top backlight to center them in the world. It's very, very cool. It's just really interesting when you think about this, like in relation to the kind of more classical Hollywood periods that we know better, like the 40s and 50s of classic Hollywood, where if you just think about the way that you pitch this film, those 40s, 50s films are more plot based. The hook is in the plot. But this one, imagine you pitch this and be like, it's about the monotony of working class life in New York. And the plot is, oh, two people fall in love, that's it. And that's a really weird pitch compared to those kind of more classical Hollywood stuff that were more familiar with and so this one it feels like his obsession is more about the capturing of the monotony of working life in the city rather than really the love story i feel or like the cacophony of the carnival is actually sometimes more important than the love itself Hmm. or it's the focus to being used to support the kind of what i call a thin plot at least i mean you can feel that this is like the medium of silent film trying to push itself and then being completely gutted by the talkie era. Yeah. The way I would describe that difference, Ben, is if the studio era is about situational plots, then there's a lot more conditional plots in the silent era or things that take a broader approach a la, again, the crowd. And Ben, you're absolutely right in that Feige is very concerned with the lives of the characters, you know, just their place in the city. Mm. Again, you can see how Feuge has this sort of anthropological leaning and how 
he's concerned with that and, you know, how that would then carry him into the later part of his career. But it's funny that you bring up how do you pitch this, because when Fage was signed on the Universal, he met with Carl Lemley, who was in charge at the time, and they were trying to figure out what he would shoot after his first film, The Last Moment. And so he got a bunch of scripts from Universal, a bunch of stories, and they were like, pick one. And he looked at all the big scripts for like their big, you know, major pictures, and he didn't like them. He didn't like any of them. <laughs> and he was ready to just walk away and be like, I'm out. But Carl Lemley's son, Carl Lemley Jr., was a huge fan of Feuge and was like, no, 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 like, let's, let's just go out to lunch. We will figure something out. And so Lemley convinced Feuge to just like stick it out and read some more stories. And he eventually read like what was meant to be just like a short, almost a B picture, just like something quick and easy. And it was about two lovers who meet when they go to Coney Island for the day. And Faye is like, this is the one I want to I wanna direct. Wow. And wow. he was like, in the contract, it says that I get to pick the story. And this is a story that I pick. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <Nice>. Awesome. <laughs> and Lemley Sr. was not too keen on it, but Lemley Jr. was. And so Lemley Jr. was like, yes, I will make it happen so long as you credit me as the producer for the film. <laughs> and so that's why Carl Lemley Jr. Mm. is credited as the producer of this film. Hmm. Wow. It was a tough sell back then, too. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great story. <laughs> At every level in its pre-production, the story itself and its afterlife and its salvaging from the abyss of history... This was a really fascinating movie to look at. And Graham, I'm so glad that you could join us and tell us about your own journey to being an archivist and about Lonesome. So thank you so much. Thank you guys for having me. It was great to be here, an honor to be on the show. And I'm glad that you guys like the movie too, because that's what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah. Graham, is there anywhere that our listeners can find you online that you'd like to direct them to? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> Don't go find Graham. Please Leave him alone. Nice. Do not do not follow me unless you know me. Uh, you can find Graham's social security number in the description to this episode. But if you are interested in some of the work that the George Eastman Museum is doing, you can view some of our digitized films online at www.eastman.org. Wonderful. And you will find that link in the description below. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Is there a preservation or a restoration project that you're currently working on right now that you're really excited about? Uh, right now, the museum is undertaking a, a large project to preserve a number of titles by director and actor William S. Hart of the early Westerns. Mm. And so wow. that was covered a bit in the Insider video, but that it's a long-term project, multiple years with numerous titles to be preserved and we're gathering elements from all over the globe for that so it's going to be really exciting once it's all done and we have uh, brand new restorations of all these films that's awesome that's one of the things about the field that i really love is that it is collaborative on almost the largest scale possible when we undertake these projects and we're searching for elements we reach out to institutions and people from all over the world and build connections this way because we all have this shared goal that 
transcends, you know, the boundaries of countries is something that creates international community. And it is really rewarding and inspiring to me. Isn't that what the movies are all about? So true. Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Cut. Please rate and review because that helps us keep making the show. Be sure to subscribe to us where you listen to podcasts so you'll know when our next episode drops. Keep up with Deep Cut on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Letterboxd at Deep Cut Pod. And you can join us to talk about movies on our Discord server, to which you'll find a link in the description. And a special thank you to Justina Yam for our beautiful artwork. I'm Wilson. I'm Ben. I'm Eli. I'm Graham. Take care, and we're looking forward to talking about more movies with you next time. What's the deal with Coney Island food, am I right? (laughs) (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.